Welcome to the Due Diligence Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. And for more than 10 years with SNN, I've been doing interviews with microcap management teams at investor conferences globally, as well as online. Our SNN Live CEO video interviews are meant to pique interest, and then one can discover more by going to that company website. But personally, I always have more questions I want to ask. On this show, I'll be chatting with public company executives from microcap companies, and we'll dive deeper into companies that are rarely profiled. Microcap traditionally is overlooked, unloved, and absolutely never featured on legacy financial media outlets unless something material is going on that's a good story. With my experience interviewing management teams, having interviewed most of them before, I've built up a network of companies, so there will be no shortage of content. Furthermore, this is an opportunity for me to showcase some of the qualitative lessons I've learned from guests on the Planet Microcap podcast. You can expect high quality interviews with management teams that may have exposure to broader macro trends that you may never have thought of. One of the many reasons why I love the microcap space. So if you love microcaps and especially love learning about companies before the professionals do, let's start our due diligence. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not provided as financial, legal, or any other advice. The information is not investment advice or an offer to buy or sell any securities or make any investment. The views expressed by guest speakers are their own and any reference to third-party product services or information does not constitute an endorsement thereof by SNN or its affiliates. SNN expressly disclaims all liability for any individual's use of the information presented in this podcast. My guest on the show today is John Swallow, CEO and president of Idaho Strategic Resources, publicly traded company. The symbol is IDR on the NYSE American. Headquartered in North Idaho, Idaho Strategic Resources is one of the few resource-based companies, public or private, possessing the combination of officially recognized U.S. domestic rare earth elements properties in Idaho and Idaho-based gold production in an established mining community. IDR's strategic two-pronged approach as a gold producer with a focus on rare earth elements and other strategic resources gives them a unique foundation of cash flows and future business plans. Idaho Strategic Resources is not your normal mining company, at least the kind that I'm used to uh, interviewing in my career. And my goal for this interview was to understand the DNA for why. In addition, John and I discuss their gold production asset in North Idaho, why IDR is excited about their rare earth elements projects, and what it's like going from a nobody's heard of us company on the OTC to now an NYSC listed company after their recent uplisting. With that, please enjoy my conversation with John Swallow, President and CEO of Idaho Strategic Resources. Welcome to the Due Diligence Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and joining me today is John Swallow. He is the president and CEO of Idaho Strategic Resources, publicly traded company. The symbol is IDR on the NYSE American. And John, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. How does that sound on the NYSE American? I mean, you were just, you're on the OTC for yeah. a long time. Is it, is just, um, you know, it's interesting when you get listed on the NYSE well, I've told people before, I have a little bit of a different theory. I, you know, once you're fully reporting with the SEC and meeting all the requirements and have auditors and everything, it's, you know, that part doesn't change. But the, uh, <laughs> I didn't think, though, you know, once we rang the bell and we rang the bell from underground, essentially, and Monique was, was out at the NYSE and we had all the guys from the mine and the mill underground at the same time, that's when it hit me. That was super cool. And it hit them, too. Like, it's like, uh-oh. You know, we're no longer a secret company in North Idaho mining underground at the Golden Chest. <laughs> oh, man, that's a great segue. So my, my first question that I usually ask everybody on here um, is if, if you had to describe the company in that one line, what, what's that best line that, you, that describes the company? Um, well, I would say uh, coming up, I'd say we're scrappy as hell. But, um, you know, our focus and my even my personal focus for years has always been on uh, stores of value. I've watched currencies forever and that kind of thing. But, you know, we're a gold producer. Um, we're a growing gold producer. We do about 5,000 ounces a year out of the chest. We're looking to grow to 15 to 20,000 ounces. And uh, we're also really, really excited about our rare earth element projects. So, you know, I would just say 
Um, we tend to look around corners a little bit. We tend to, we don't, we're not afraid of putting in the hard work and putting our money in first and going for it and taking the time it takes to build it right. Right. Um, that was one long run on sentence, by the way. So <laughs> yeah, no, there's a lot of commas and, and yeah, there's a ton of commas in that. Yeah. No, I got you. Um, you know, so I've been following the company for a long time. I know I, I've been, I sound like a broken record. I say that almost with every interview that I've had on here. Um, but you know, I've seen back when Idaho was New Jersey mining and I, I saw you guys present at, at a couple different conferences out there. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's been it's really interesting because I, I got my start in 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 this going to investor conferences, meeting with companies and stuff, you know, and going to a lot of mining shows. And I'm going to tell you right now, there was one company that I never saw at any mining specific shows, and that was New Jersey Mining slash Idaho Strategic Resources. So I, I, I want to I want I want you to take me back a little bit and give me a little history. You know, the, you first bought control of the company in 2012 when. It was New Jersey Mining on the OTC, and it's now just uplisted on the NYSC. You know, can you give us can you give us that overview in, uh, of the company and how it's gotten to where it is in the last ten years? Boy, this is usually a conversation over quite a few beers. Um, but the uh, we can get yeah, some. You know, I, 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 I bought my. What's that? I said we could get some. I got. <laughs> if you want. It's still a little early here. Um, it's five o'clock somewhere. We'll, there you go. I, uh, you know, I bought my position from one of the co-founders of New Jersey Mining Company. Uh, he was retiring and his son, who's about my age, wanted to continue on. And it's Grant Brackabush. And he, uh, he oversees all of our operations, um, you know, just salt of the earth family, third generation mining folks. Um, and his son, Andrew, is one of our mine engineers who's really coming up through the ranks fast. I mean, he's kind of one of the heir apparents, essentially. Um, but... You know, the, speaking of the Canadians, my first time up in Canada at the Vancouver Research Conference, I walk in there and I'm quite a bit younger than now, but I look around and everybody has the same booth. They have the same, almost the same graphics um, and they almost all had the same business plan. But I, I, you know, this is back when I was looking at, but there's not really a cash flow component to this, 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 I mean, I've always been a business guy. So like, you know, I love exploration. I love discovery, but you can't kind of eat dessert before you have dinner, so to speak. So I, um, I looked around and I thought, you know, the one common denominator these guys all need is drilling. And I thought, you know, why don't we be kind of, why don't I look at the services side of this or cash flow side that helps fund the exploration side or the blue sky of discovery. And so that was really one of my first times up there. We, but I also realized that if you're not kind of part of the system up there, you know, if you're not on the inside, you're on the outside. And I wasn't real fond of a, a guy in a, you know, a dark suit and a white shirt and a red or blue tie telling me what I needed to do next. And so that was pretty much one of the last times we ever went. Um, so we kind of pick and choose our battles. You know, we like smaller venues. We like, we like to talk to folks. We like to let them get to know us because if they don't like us then we really hope they don't invest, you know, I don't want those phone calls. So it, you know, it works out pretty good that way. I don't know if that's kind of where you were going with that, but that's. No, that was, that was one part of it. And, and I guess the second part is, you know, since, since acquiring it, you know, what was, what really, what was, what originally attracted you to the company? You know, why, why did you say, all right, I'm going to go in, buy this asset and now continuing to, to grow to where it's at today. What was that original thesis? You know, one of the, the New Jersey mill was really the, it already being in place and knowing that, you know, it's kind of, it's an award-winning mill and I've always really liked it. And I felt, you know, if you, you can't really start small and grow, if a company wants to start small in production, it's really hard to also finance the building of a mill in, in, you know, that kind of infrastructure. So I knew, I don't really like to start big. I think starting big is kind of a, essentially the same as failing big or, or basically never getting started is kind of what some of these plans are. So I, I've also liked the golden chest since I was in junior high. Um, now, New Jersey only had 48% ownership of the golden chest when I got started. And there was a bunch of debt surrounding it. Um, I kind of like to say that, you know, the, the first million bucks that went into the business was my own. So we, <laughs> it's kind of funny. I had to write a letter uh, telling the prior board of directors why I deserved to have the position 
And I was like, well, I can't believe this. But anyway, there was, you know, not a lot in the bank, but a lot. I think it had a really good core assets. And I really liked the core group of people around the Silver Valley. And I thought, okay, but really what they were lacking was kind of a guy like myself. Somebody's going to step in and help out and kind of been there, done that, and we're willing to to kind of build this thing over time. A quick tangent. What was your background prior to, to uh, coming in and investing in, in New Jersey mining? Well, I've been a silver commodities real estate person, but I was buying silver with my lawn one money back in the day. So, I mean, I'm seriously doing that. I was planning for the end of the world well before anybody else. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, I was a, I graduated in finance from Arizona State, um, went to University of Idaho, then graduated from Arizona State. And um, it's always, my background has always been on the investing side, um, business side, you just just a lot of hard assets, work, kind of more blue collar type approach to stuff. And I was a real estate appraiser for 15 years, but it was my investment portfolio on the side that actually allowed me to retire from that business and do what I wanted. And that's when I, that's when the whole idea about having a drilling division um, kind of supporting exploration came about. And I was, you know, sometimes, you know, you just, it's good. You're kind of naive in the beginning. Otherwise maybe you'll never get started and um, went for it, learned everything I needed to learn really quick. And, um, you know, I was in my thirties and uh, yeah, it was a good experience. Lots of good folks. And everything I've learned over the years is like culminated um, at Idaho Strategic. And I'd say it's that way even for our workforce. We've got a lot of our senior leadership or guys my age that went and worked in Alaska or Nevada and were away from their families forever. And now they want to be home. And you come to the Silver Valley, which is, again, one of the world's best um, mining jurisdictions or mining districts. And, you know, when you have that kind of when those kind of folks want to come work with you and they like, I know that they're working hard every day and they know I'm working hard every day. We don't, there isn't a whole lot of in between. So, you know, you treat them right, take care of them. And, and, you know, a lot of them have their kids are coming up and their nephews and we've got a couple husband and wife teams. And I mean, it's really kind of cool to see. That's awesome. Yeah. No, when we were just, when we were uh, trying to organize this interview, you know, I talked your son's now in the business, you know, I talked to Travis to get this all together. So it's a, I, yeah. I, I like that family aspect to it. Rob, we're a family business too. So I, no, it's cool. Well, you know, and people think, oh, nepotism, but no, that's not how it works in the mining around us. I mean, you don't, there's no place to hide. Yeah. Um, I always tell this story about Andrew Brackabush. So Grant runs our operations and the first t-shirts I got for the cruise, I called uh, Grant and I said, Hey, I'm going to get Andrew a t-shirt. What sizes, you know, he wear. And he goes, what? He goes, he doesn't need no damn t-shirt. He goes, he hasn't earned it yet. And so I'd, I'd go to the mine. I'd give t-shirts to everybody except Andrew. <laughs> so it's a kind of a long running joke with us. Like whenever you're kind of t-shirt worthy, you know, you know, you've made it. Oh, I like that. So, you know, going back to that, when, when you first, uh, you know, bought into the company and whatnot, what were your initial thoughts about the projects that and the business in general that ended up being either totally false or or you're like oh that's exactly what I thought but I I think the thesis that I was thinking long term can play out here. Um, well, you know, it's just a daily. You know, you're you're making a million decisions a day, and they all compound over time. And you know, the thing I think you get better at as you get older is you learn which ones have meaning and or need addressing right away. And, um, but you know, when you're growing a, a team also, you know, you've got, they've got to have the reins to fail as well. And so, you know, the, the part that's hard about this, not hard, but it's just a challenge. And I knew it going in is, you know, you're not hardly anybody's been involved in a business where their opinion matters or where like within the silver Valley or mining districts, you know, these guys, the cycles go up and down and they know they're going to be out of a job soon. And, you know, a lot of times it has nothing to do with them and showing these guys that, you know, what their day means to the business. So I guess one of the things I guess I'd say was, I would say the challenges and the time it took to get us to that stage took a longer than I was expecting. Um, but I would say that all those seeds that were planted, holy cow, did they ever come up at once? I mean, they, 
it was really good that way. I think, you know, the idea when we started out was to start small, fund the production with our open pit, fund underground development, um, work on the blue sky aspects of the, of the Murray Gold Belt and consolidate that district. And that took four or five years. You know, I really didn't have, I had a long-term vision when I started. I knew this was going to be pretty much the last public company that I wanted to be involved with. And I saw the planet. I saw the planets lining up with the people and the assets and the timing. And when we started this gold was like a 1080 or 1100 an ounce. So, you know, it's like I, I always say, good companies are, um, are built in bad times. And so I knew, I knew we would have a lot of challenges and I knew, you know, if it's raising money or whatever it was, it was going to be difficult. Um, and I'd say in the early days, raising money to get started was, was a little bit harder than I thought. Um, but I'd say overall, I would say I'm, I'm very, very pleased with the way the team and everybody has taken on the vision, kind of the ecosystem approach to this and really running for it, running with it and owning it. And you just can't ask for, um, now there's plenty of times on the way up, I'd say, holy shit, what the hell did we do? Um, you know, cause every February we would have a team meeting and, you know, it's been raining and snowing and cold and, you know, everything, everything's fighting you. Gold, gold production fights you the entire way, you know? And so we're, you know, we always talk about earning our way through and, you know, we run into challenges, you know, with water or underground at the mine or people or people getting sick. And we'd always know we're about ready to hit something big, right? When all the challenges hit. So I got to ask you this question because the strategy that you went with for gold production on, on, on golden chest, right. Yeah. On, on golden chest. Uh, it, it's, 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 it's the antithesis of what almost the entire gold industry really does, especially on the exploration going to the production side, you know, from, from my understanding, most folks, you know, when they say they're about to go into production, they're expecting, you know, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of, of uh, ounces of gold on an annual basis. And you went to production where, uh, you know, 5,000 a year, now hoping to get to 15, 20,000. Yeah, we grew into 5,000. I mean, that wasn't even like we started there. What, what, what was what was the strategy there? Like, because that it's it really completely was, opposite. It really was to start small and grow. And I wanted, you know, if you're going to start small and, you, and, you know, when you're taking money from investors, you're, 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 you know, their money, you're, you're the steward of their money. I'm the steward of my own, but I'm the steward of theirs. But you're also the steward of people's families. Like, you know, there's a lot of responsibility. And I always say that I, you know, I wanted to prove our, prove what we were doing, prove ourselves to ourselves, prove ourselves to our families and our communities. Like when you're really thinking you're going to build a multi-generational business, you have to start so far back and start building that trust and, and everything. And that's the part that takes a while. And, you know, there's something like one in 10,000 mines ever go into production. So right. those 400 companies that I originally saw up in Vancouver, I would lay you odds that two maybe became mines, but they all said they were going to produce 100,000 ounces a year. I, I've never had the desire to, I was called like, be everyone else. Like, if I was just like everyone else, I would have way too much competition for myself. So, um, but I don't know any other way to do it than what makes sense to build it as a business, which is really the way it used to be until a lot of the bigger money got behind it and they kind of had to move the needle approach. So you had all these large, I, I kind of look at it like start big, fail big kind of plans or take forever to get permitted. Um, I, there's a number of projects out there that have taken years to get permitted. And I think that's some of those. I think our lifestyle companies, I think a lot of management teams kind of get used to making a salary, having the convenient excuse that permitting is taking forever. It's just not us. I, our guys aren't set up that way. We're just not hardwired like that, you know, to each his own. And I, I know this kind of rambling here, but I always say too that, or I think that, you know, I think we could go run a larger company, but I don't think the CEOs of a lot of larger companies could come start a small company. And I just don't think they could pull it off. And I, um, I, uh, I think a lot of guys walk into kind of established companies and think that they're sort of accomplishing something, but they're really, they're just walking into an established cash flow machine that they just have to try hard not to screw it up until retirement. 
Absolutely. And so, anyway, I've got a few opinions on that. No, I'm, I'm sure you do. We'll probably talk a little bit more about it too as we get into some of the more corporate questions going down yeah. the road here. But uh, just I'm playing a little devil's advocate here. From my understanding, was the mill already operational when you came? Yeah. So you didn't have to worry about like raising all the money to build the mill and no. the production. Like all of that was basically ready to go. Once that was the starter kit. That was the starter gotcha. kit. If the mill wasn't there, I really don't believe we would have started the way we did. Gotcha. So the mill was the starter kit and be, you would have had to have drilled out a massive deposit somewhere, you know, and had the massive CapEx for a mill and all of that. And the mill allowed us to start small and really just see, see what we can do. I never had a doubt on the gold and the Murray gold belt or the golden chest. That wasn't it, but it was the, uh, you got to have the starter kit. Somewhere. I mean, that was the competitive advantage. And I've been looking at the, at the mill for a while. Even when I was at a different company, I was looking at trucking ore to the mill from Montana. So, I mean, I, I'd known the mill. I'd known the bracket bushes for a long time. And I really liked it. And I knew I never really had envisioned, if you would ask me 10 years earlier, um, that this is what I'd be doing. I wouldn't have told you yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, I, the reason I keep going back to that time, except I remember, I mean, back in 2011, I mean, that was peak gold. It was hitting 1800. You know, I think, you know, there are so many of these junior mining startups that were out there. I think most of which are, are not around anymore. And yeah. I, I would have thought that somebody would have, especially in Idaho, which is a, has a great tradition of mining, you know, the gold, everything that somebody, some of these, either the majors or somebody else, a speculator also kind of saw some of the opportunity that you did, but it, were, were there any other folks that were looking at this like you did or what was, what was happening? No, not, not, not to build a business around it. You know, there, there were folks that wanted to promote it, uh, um, but not, not go in and actually say, we're going to, you know, we're actually going to turn the key and start a business. Mm. Um, There's just two totally different approaches. I, I don't really like the other approach. I love exploration in the blue sky of discovery. I mean, I really like it, but I also don't like, it's kind of a lit match. I, I don't, you know, even when I was early coming up, I, you know, I invested in my first mining stock when I think I was 14 and, you know, my mom had to go basically buy it for me. Um, so I'd been watching forever and I was, you know, losing, losing money in these old juniors way, way back in the day. And, you know, I will not losing money, but you'd watch the cycles and the cycles would go against you and the company had nothing. And I was like, well, this is ridiculous. Like you got to have something because you got to have something, you know, the, the cycles happen and you got to have the, you know, the assets to start back up again. And so like even today um, at Idaho Strategic, we, the only debt we really have is on equipment debt, you know? And so if the cycle happened to go against us, we can hold all of our assets um, for, you know, 125 grand a year. Like, you know, so our shareholder base is protected. Like, you know, we just really, um, we focused hard. So, you know, you focus hard on the upside, but, you know, we've always had a shit hits the fan approach to this. Like you gotta be protected on the downside and then we can go for it on the upside. So we're, you know, as far as, you know, we, we spend every dollar we make plus some on exploration and going forward, um, it's just sort of our style. Gotcha. All right, let's dig into the business right now a little bit, right? So we have our gold production side of things. We also have uh, rare earth elements exploration as well. So tell us a little bit about the gold project itself. You mentioned that you're at right now, 5,000 ounces a year, looking Mm -hmm. to grow. So tell us a little bit about that and then we'll get into the rare, rare earth side of things. Yeah, we're producing roughly, you know, give or take 5,000 ounces a year, which largely transitioned to mostly underground production now. Um, so we're done producing out of our, our uh, Klondike pit. Um, so we're producing from one area of the mine. It's called the Skookum. And we have two other areas of the mine we've been advancing over the years. And we anticipate um, developing over into those two areas and producing roughly the same as we do out of the Skookum. So you have three areas going this is pretty simple math, 5,000 ounces plus a year out of each one of those. Um, one of our, our future plans here, we're actually currently working on, and we've talked about it before um, publicly, is that we would like to build a mill up at the mine. Right now we truck our ore about 45 minutes to the current New Jersey mill. Um, it would be nicer and more economic, obviously, to have the mill right 
roughly the same size mill, maybe a little bit bigger, but right there at the mine. So, you know, going from 5,000 ounces to uh, 15 to 20, you know, that's, you know, your cost structure. I mean, it's kind of all over the place with us because, you know, we, we do a drill program on our rare earth elements project and it counts on our cost grounds. So we don't really get to capitalize a lot of costs. So it's kind of guts and feathers in our, in our all in sustaining costs. So we're, um, you know, we're targeting, uh, say around just give or take again, cap every caveat, um, you know, $1,300 an ounce all in on, you know, 15 to 20,000 ounces a year in production that isn't happening tomorrow, but but that is what we're shooting for. That's what our guys know that their goals are. And trust me, they know that and they want it more than anybody. And um, that's also allowing us to expand into the rare earths and focus on that as well. Yeah. Let, let's tell, tell me a little bit about that. Cause I saw on the website that, you know, the project it's an officially, and I quote here, officially recognized U S domestic rare earth elements uh, property. So what does that mean? Yeah. And then about the project itself. So the USGS puts out a list of our national inventory of critical minerals. They've been doing it. I think it's annually for, for as long as I can remember. So that's the United States geologic survey. Um, and you know, rare earth elements are just line item on there. And, you know, and they, over the years, I started following them in the late nineties, like following that list of rare earth elements. Um, late nineties, there wasn't much of a play there. I was also kind of an industrial minerals guy then too. I liked gravel pits and that kind of just, you know, bread and butter type stuff. Um, but I always kept in the back of my head that there was, uh, you know, there's something to this because you had this this crossover of the U.S. supplying rare earths and China coming up and we're declining and they're coming up. And um, I didn't pay as much attention to the processing side, but that's even a worse story than the production side. Um, so, you know, when the pandemic hit, it kind of it started telling me, you know, Rob and I have been talking about this for a couple of years ahead of time. We're like, you know, there, there's going to be a situation coming where it's going to make sense to add, you know, that playbook or the rare earth elements, critical minerals to our portfolio. And right as the right as the pandemic started, I told Rob, I said, Rob, they're ringing a bell. Let's go. You know, so we decided to pull the trigger on that playbook. And uh, sorry, I had a dog just walk in here. Um, anyway, so we decided to pull the trigger on that. But, you know fortunate for us we were early and you know we are students of history and we've been following it forever and the uh the the particular properties that we have are actually um listed in the top five or so of our nationally recognized rare earth element deposits in the country and it's a pretty cool story so back in the 50s and 60s our government following world war ii was uh you know trying to kind of trying to decide between uranium and thorium as far as what we're going to use for nuclear power, nuclear weapons, that kind of stuff. And as we all know, uranium won out and part of it had to do with uh, plutonium byproduct. But while they were out looking for uranium and thorium, they actually discovered rare earths. They went all over the country. This is our government. So this is like a DARPA kind of Department of Defense, Department of Energy or Atomic Energy Commission. Um, they went all over the country doing testing themselves, our government did, and they basically discovered the rare earth elements all these different deposits or different areas within the United States. And it just happened that Idaho is right up there near the top of the list, but the government ended up choosing uranium for nuclear power and nuclear weapons. Thorium got kind of set aside and there really wasn't a use for rare elements at the time. So, you know, what we looked at was, you know, um, it's just a, it was kind of a forgotten part of our history and we took full advantage of acquiring those properties. So, a lot of the baseline work that we have and that we're advancing right now is work that was actually done by our own government. I think our, I think our um, Diamond Creek property is like number three on the list in our national inventory for rare earth element deposits. And that's both really cool and sort of disturbing. And, and I'll tell you why, because it's really cool that we have it, but it's really kind of weird that our government considers this a deposit. And that our national security depended on this as being like the number three deposit when there's no mine there, there's no mill, there's no work. I mean, there's, there's a lot of prior work, but it's not shovel ready. And so, you know, but the opportunity is there and that's where we came in. So it really just highlights that, that situation we're running into where we were so far behind the curve with China that um, that's the kind of things that we were counting on, 
in our national inventory. So, I mean, we're rapidly, I mean, moving fast, you know, we're, we're Americans. We can get this figured out if once we have to, but um, did I answer your question? Yes, you did. Okay. <laughs> you very much. Well, I'm going to follow up too. Cause it sounds like on, on the rarer side, you know, cause gold production, it sounds like, you know, you're going to keep advancing it. Yep. Do your best to, to expand the, the, the ounces and whatnot there, but on the rare earth yeah. side, where are we currently at right now? You know, are we still ex- doing some exploration drilling and whatnot, or are we advancing it towards near-term production? If, if you could even say that. Well, I kind of say, you know, you're, it's a little bit of all of the above, you know, we, we kind of have this saying that we plan for success. So we, you know, we, we go into something assuming we're going to be successful. So we do quite a bit of work ahead of time that, that really helps make that a reality. Um, we just, we've, so we've got a drill program on a Diamond Creek property coming up here in June. And that's the, that's kind of the first real drill test of this property. There's been a lot of testing done, a lot of sampling, a lot of, I mean, just a ton of work, but this is going to be a really good uh, drill test of this really one part of it. You know, that's kind of interesting this district has 217 vein systems throughout this district. You know, we're testing kind of one of the main areas, but um, part of that drill program. So we're going to be using the core from that drill program and we're partnering with um, University of Idaho, Idaho Geologic Survey, Center for Advanced Energy Studies and Idaho National Labs. And we're actually taking the core from our drill program and they're using it to work on Idaho our University of Idaho is using it to work on um, kind of an environmentally friendly approach to bio leaching and separation of rare earth elements. So we're, we're part and it's uh, part of the iGEM. I think we put out a press release on that a couple months ago, but we got that approval and that grant. I was just down on a water panel last Tuesday down in Boise. Um, it was water and critical mineral panel. And honestly, I think they added the words critical minerals because they wanted us to be there. And, um, it was a really good panel. I, you can tell everybody gets it. Like they, they know that we need to really get going on this stuff. And, and our, our approach on this kind of when I think from a, you know, an Idahoan and a person that's kind of a fan of conservation and history and stuff is that when we advance these rare earth element properties, everybody's going to have a say, you know, from, from start to finish. So there's not like a legacy issue that we have to solve first or anything like that. It, you know, it really is going to be, the locals, us, I mean, everybody's going to have a say in this process. Everybody, we've defined the problem. We've defined the desire to advance it. And, um, you know, so I, I'm really looking forward to that part of it. Because I see some of these projects get caught up in fights. And, you know, and, and usually, honestly, both sides are usually a little bit right and a little bit wrong. Um, I wanted to participate on this panel because I think, um, and, and it worked out really well for us, but I wanted to introduce us and our style and, and we've already, you know, met with a bunch of local folks and we've had some of them come up to our office and visit us and say, what can we do to help? You know, so I, I really think as we get going, you're going to see, you know, from drilling to additional drilling to making, figuring out where this stuff's going to be processed and, you know, inviting Idaho National Labs and University of Idaho and these other groups in to help solve these problems. Gotcha. So, you know, this was probably my, I, this should have probably been the theme of our, of our interview today. And I should ask it maybe even earlier, because I think you've already said qu- quite a few answering this question, but, you know, maybe if there's anything we missed, you know, for you, what would you say makes, truly makes Idaho strategic resources unique and different compared to your peers out there? Well, it's definitely our people. I mean, I know that may even sound kind of cliche, but that's, um, you know, we, we've taken Grant and Rob and, you know, John and Andrew and everybody else in the, in the business have taken a lot of pride in, in the business and uh, in the company and growing it and ownership of it and, you know, knowing what their day means to the bottom line. And they're all shareholders. So we're, you know, we, we understand what it's like it's very, it's very, I'd say kind of an intimate approach, but it's also like we have a very much a big picture patriotic viewpoint. Like if you told us we had to go save the world tomorrow, we'd probably start the process. You know, I mean, that's just kind of how we work. I, um, you know, the, the planets aligned, I think I mentioned it, but with a lot of our leadership, senior leadership folks, 
like myself, we've all, we're not all chasing the next dream. Like this is the dream. Like this is the one we always wanted and we're here. If I, I, was, I was telling the guys up there at Shift Change, I was like, you know, if you think about this, 15, 20 years ago, if all of us 30-some-year-old guys were sitting around bullshitting about starting this project, it would have failed miserably. Like we just, the timing would have been wrong. We would have been wrong. And um, I just can't say enough about that. Like it, when it starts to work, you know it, like you recognize it. And that's our, I'd say it's definitely a competitive advantage. Being in Idaho, um, you know, Idaho is number one in the world in mining policy and number seven in mining jurisdiction in the world. So we're, you know, we're in a, we're in a state that understands our industry. It doesn't mean you can run around doing whatever you want, but they understand it. A lot of the communities are resource based, so they understand it. Um, you know, there's a lot of good folks and, you know, so it's kind of timing location. It's really, it, I can't say enough good about that. I, I mean, I would, if somebody wanted to hand me this massive operating mine in Nevada right now, I'd say, eh, I don't want to do that. Gotcha. So one, one more question on the, on the gold side of things. Um, you know, we're seeing right now, we're recording this uh, April 27th and gold was touched 2000. It's about 18, high 1800s, you know, and what's been interesting is that, you know, in previous years, that price, it's like, oh my gosh, like you would expect all the all gold stocks to just continue to rocket, you know, because you're just, especially on the produ- production side, because those margins, you know, if you can produce at under a thousand uh, all in costs, you know, there we go. Look at that. Um, but with, with, since COVID with supply chain issues, just, you know, uh, uh, manpower issues, you know, how have you been dealing with some of the challenges that are affecting you as a gold producer on, on that side of things? You know, when we started out, we maybe even naively started out with the business plan around $1,200 gold. Like, that's what we were looking for. We got the $1,300, we were good, you know, because we started small. So we, we were very calculated in that approach. Um, you know, I, you, know you, build, you build the company and you build your asset base when the commodity prices are lower because you, you shouldn't really ever be trying to start a business in the, you know, the, the hockey stick part of the chart. And so you really, that's when you're supposed to be harvesting, not planting. And so we, um, I don't, I hate to say that I don't pay a lot of attention to the gold price because I do. It's just that we're kind of set up to be able to do what we need to do, no matter what the gold price is. Now, I think the gold price, you know, the longer it stays kind of around these levels, the better it is for the long-term stability of, of gold anyway. I, I think, you know, you get these spikes up and spikes back down. That does nobody any good because that's usually what everybody references all the time. But the longer, you know, we stayed at 12, 1300 for quite a while. You, know, you get to 15, 1600, you, you wanted to just stay there for a while, you know. And now I think we've been in this range for, for a little bit. And it's all, it's kind of reflecting, I think, a lot of things. It's, you know, um, dollar reserve status. I mean, there's a lot of things in the wind out there that I think it, it started to predict it hasn't priced it in yet. And I think it will over time. I, I do like the slower approach of gold pricing these things in. I, I, I told somebody a while ago, like if gold ran to 10,000, I don't want to see what the world looks like at $10,000 gold. Like I, you know, it, but grinding its way higher is perfect for our business and our approach. And, you know, I've, I've kind of harped on this a couple of times now and I just, it's still, it's still baffling to me every time I, you know, saw you present or, you know, even just mentioned, you know, back when it was New Jersey mining and now I don't, like, you know, within, within some of the, you know, newsletter writers that I know, some of the mining folks I know, like, hey, have you ever heard of this company? And most of the time it was no. And it just blew my mind. I was like, wait, this is, why? Like, why, why is this not? Well, most people it- like to be handed stuff. They don't like to do the hard work of going and finding it. I mean, that's <laughs> one of the things. But, you know, what's interesting is to think about it this way. When you start out with uh, going into production as your story, when, what else do you have to say? Like, now you've actually just got to perform. Like, if you're starting out with, oh, we're building a million ounces, and you start with, we did these 10 drill holes, we did these 10 drill holes, we got these results. Like, you can bleed that story out forever. But when you start out and saying, you know what, we're going into production, and that's our base cash flow for growth, Pretty much everybody's only looking for you to put out a press release saying, you know, you're in production and you're growing. So there wasn't a lot of news to actually talk about. Like 
you know, we, we hit, we hit stuff underground that would be newsworthy in any other company, you know, but by the time I even consider that it's already at the mill and being turned into concentrate. So like, it's just a business, like we're going like things that are newsworthy for us are not necessarily the same that are newsworthy for everyone else on, on the other side of it. And part of it does have to do with me. I'm not a big fan of, um, I just am not, a, I'd like to do it first and then talk about it and supposed to talk about it and then maybe not accomplish it, you know? So, you know, people are putting their money in. I want them to know exactly what they're buying, when they're buying it, evaluate, come visit the mine, the mill. If they want to invest great. If they don't, that's okay. You know, um, I never ask anybody what their share position is. I don't want that to ever be a, a reason to not talk or talk. So, um, you know, we're, uh, you know, we're on the NYSC now. Um, our profile is, is growing rapidly, the rare earth elements side of it. Um, we're no longer the secret little company located in North Idaho. Um, I kind of liked that during the growth phase. You know, it's kind of like you, do you really want to follow a teenager around with a camera? You know, you really want to kind of meet him when they're 25. So I, um, I, I kind of like our, how, how it played out for us. And so, you know, now, now that you're on NYSE and, you know, even though, even though you now are, you've, you've done a ton of, you've done a few of these investor conferences and talk, yeah. obviously have shareholder base and whatnot, but what if prospective investors still potentially get confused about the company? Some of the frequent um, questions you get. You know, it's, I'll tell you what, you know, when people call us, the, it used to be that I'd have about 80% of the calls would be around gold, you know, and gold production and what are you doing with that? And I'll tell you what, I mean, most of the calls we get now are around rare earth elements and everybody knows the story. And I'm not even sure it's confused. I'd say they're more confused on, on how, like the, you know, Biden's, you know, we're going to have 50% of our vehicles are going to be electric by 2030. What they're confused about is how in the hell that's going to happen. Like nobody gets it. Like, you know, they, some people still think you go plug your, you know, you plug into the wall and that's where electricity comes from and stuff like that. So it's um, the confusion around us. I'd say a little bit is that we're, we're probably very hands-on like our corporate office is now three people with the addition of, of Travis joining the team, who's taken a tremendous amount of weight off of me. Um, you know, you kind of wonder if, uh, you know, you wonder if your kid's picking up on what you're doing as they're growing up. Holy cow. I, you know, he, he was listening. So, you know, and he's, he's running with it and the same with Andrew's son and the other guys at the mine. So, you know, I don't, I don't know if there's anything people are really confused about other than, they just don't know that much about us. And so, you know, usually the folks that have gone to the website or watched these kinds of things know quite a bit. And then, but some folks call up and, you know, say, tell me about yourself. Well, I'm like, um, go to the website <laughs> and, you know, read a president's letter or two, and then you'll get a feel for us. And then we can go from there. Absolutely. So also want to play a little devil's advocate here, you know, uh, as this to everybody on here as well. Sure. Um, what, what would you say, in your opinion, are the company's downside risks? Um, you know, you've always got commodity risk. I mean, that's that's for sure. Um, you know, you've got exploration risk that it's, it's always there in spades. Like I, you know, the thing with us is like, you know, I always say we're not going to go out of business by screwing people over. If we do, we'll go out of business because, you know, the commodity prices tank or, you know, there's no gold there. There's no rare earth elements there, just like any mining company would. Um, I There's a lot of those kinds of business-related risks. You know, mining's a difficult, difficult business. The, but, you know, one of the things I like about it is that it's really hard. The barriers to entry are high. Um, but once you get to your final product, you're not really like gold. I don't have to worry about a teenager out there changing their mind about what they like. And uh, my product all of a sudden not be in having a market. You know, there's been a market for gold for two or 3,000 years. Rare earth elements, the tailwinds we have for this right now, the massive underinvestment in this industry is, is unlike anything we've ever seen. So, you know, the, some of the things I would have told you a year or two ago would be the, 
um, some of the risks on the rare earth element side was just that the, that the politicians were not going to realize it. they were not going to understand it. The public wasn't going to get it. We were going to be way too early. Um, you know, early, early is wrong or it can be wrong. And so, you know, we did have our doubts for a little bit there. Are, are we, you know, are we a decade early, you know, um, that kind of thing. So I don't know if that really answered your question, but there's, you know, from an economic standpoint or the business side, you know, to me, the parts that we've secured are land status and our asset base, and we can hold those in, in the worst of times. So again, four years ago, three years ago, I would have said, um, probably when the debt comes due on the land, you know, <laughs> um, we're going to lose that piece of property, but that debt's all gone now, you know, so we're, we're kind of, um, kind of stair-stepping our way right along and, and the, and the base is protected. Gotcha. So where do you, you know, from what you can tell us, I mean, for you personally, where do you see the company in three to five years? And, and then what are the inflection points that you think that you need to hit in order for to get there? I would say within five years, you're going to see the, you know, we will know if the, you know, we have kind of a grow your own philosophy on the management side and the leadership side, you're going to see a lot of these young guys in much more advanced leadership roles. Um, so you'll see the company transitioning that way, which I welcome because there's a lot of young engineers and young geologists and young business people that have a lot of really good ideas, like really good ideas. Um, one of the things that I'm personally looking at is the kind of the value chain of the rare earths. Like you take it out of the ground, you know, you, the, the labs and the, the smart scientist guys will figure out how to separate it and all that. But I want a piece of the tail end of it, you know, the, the battery side of it and the, the permanent magnet side of it. And so keeping that value chain kind of within the state of Idaho and maybe even within our company is something I'm focused on right now. Um, so those are things like I could see us having, I could see us, I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I could see us expanding into the, the, the tail end of it, a little bit of the rare earth element, say production chain or, um, value chain. Um, the gold side of it, I believe we will be have expanded into the Murray Gold Belt. We have 1500 acres there of very, very good private land that we've been acquiring over the years. And I, I always thought there's kind of like there's gold everywhere on it because there kind of is gold everywhere on it. Um, but it needs to be tested. So, you know, sampling programs and historic stuff is fine. Um, but I would fully expect in five years to have another mine in that area operational or at least heading that way. Um, and we actually have a property in, down by <clears throat> Elk City um, called the Eastern Star. That's another kind of twin to the Murray Gold Belt. I could see that one being advanced by us or someone else. Um, so we don't even mind, you know, JVing and keeping a piece for the cash flow or whatever. But, you know, I would think we're going to be growing on all, all, all sides of it. I would expect, hopefully, for our country's sake, We've got a rare earth element project in production within five years. I mean, that would be, we, we, I don't even know how our country can not do this. So um, we just met with uh, folks from Senator Rich's office uh, last week as well. And, you know, so you can see it's no longer us having to convince people that, oh my gosh, you need to look at this. It's like, okay, how in the heck do we all come together to get this thing going? Kind of both sides of the aisle. And, and how much, if at all, have your shareholders influenced your decision-making process? Um, well, I mean, everybody's an owner of the business. So, I, you know, we take input. Like, we talk to people all the time. Like I, like I said, I don't ever ask somebody if they're a shareholder. You know, if they have something interesting to say or whatever, we'll talk. And, you know, we, we have a everybody – we have this philosophy of everybody gets an opinion – um, and that's sort of like, no matter who you are in a company, if you have an idea or an opinion, you get to say something and even shareholders, like, uh, you know, again, I don't really know if somebody's a shareholder, but if they have an idea that's worth looking at, we look at it. Now I'm not saying we're going to follow it. Um, but you know, like we kind of joke around a little bit at the end of the day, like everybody will tell me their opinion and then I'll go do what I want anyway. Um, but it's not quite like that, but sometimes it is the, um, we do talk to shareholders and get input because, you know, they, they see what's going on out there from their perspective. 
you know, and, and we're, we're in the middle of running a business and trying to build value. And I'm still the largest shareholder. So I have a very, you know, keen interest in a higher share price and, and a longstanding um, store of value for everybody. Um, but yeah, we're pretty open, but on the other side of it, um, I've had people call, Monique's had people call and they kind of just complain at us and they obviously haven't followed the company for a long time or whatever. And, you know, we've just kind of let them know that maybe their investment parameters and our company don't really mesh at this time um, and either don't look at us or don't own it. I, I really think people need to understand what they own. I don't think we're the only thing they should own, but I think if for the speculative cyber portfolio, it's where my money is. Well, to close us out here today, you know, I, I, ask this, I, ask this, I, I close out with this question every single time, but you know, what's been your experience been like being a public company CEO and running a public company and having to deal with all the responsibilities that come with being that public company CEO? Um, you know, we, you know, we've been around a little while, so we kind of understand the things that we didn't used to understand. <laughs> Let's say that way. the things that took you a lot longer to do, you know, you, you know, you just have to be careful. You know, I, I like to have all news out there at all the time. So, so then you can have open conversations with people. Like I, I'm, I'm a proponent of more communication, not less. Um, you know, but I will say one of the toughest parts I'd say for, not to say tough, it was challenging when the pandemic first started, you know, there's a lot of um, uncertainty and confusion, even with me, but I spent more time at the mine, the mill and talking to each person. I mean, way more than I ever have and actually way more than I have since. And just to make sure, you know, and, and the, our guys like know where we're sitting financially. They know what our goals are. They know what their day means, but then it was really more important. And we even used our Facebook page, to communicate because people weren't able to go back to Wisconsin and see their family or whatever, but the, they were actually keeping kind of apprised of what, cause Idaho in, in Idaho mining was um, considered the central business. So we were still working, you know? And so we were working when a lot of other places weren't. And so that I'd say from a challenge from a CEO point of view, like I can take business challenges, losses, wins, whatever, but the pandemic and making sure everybody because everybody had a different mental picture of what was going on. And that part right there, you were living a lot of people's lives and you were also responsible for them. It's a tough job, <laughs> but someone's got to do it. a good group though. I mean, it's, yeah. if it wasn't such a good group, it'd be a tough job, but it's, it's, I enjoy the heck out of it. I, I love what I do. I love coming to work every day. This is, you know, one day I'll be the grandparent to the company and not the parent. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to see it become a very big, successful company that's um, doing quite a bit to help out the state of Idaho and all these communities. I think that's a perfect place to end it. So with that, John, where can our audience go and find more information on Idaho Strategic? Um, obviously, our website is idahostrategic.com. And you know, if you want to get a better flavor for how we think, you know, go look at our president's letters. I think I put them out every two to three to four months. They're kind of have a little bit of a flavor of our opinion on the world and how we view things. I think those are give a lot of insight if somebody wants to know how the person thinks that they're investing in. Very good. Well, John, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. I look forward to our next update. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not provided as financial, legal, or any other advice. The information is not investment advice or an offer to buy or sell any securities or make any investment. The views expressed by guest speakers are their own and any reference to third-party products, services, or information does not constitute an endorsement thereof by SNN or its affiliates. SNN expressly disclaims all liability for any individual's use of the information presented in this podcast.